It's been said that cleanliness is next to godliness. And while many are certain that this is a verse in the Bible, I can assure you it's not. Yeah, this is not a verse in the Bible. And, 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 and what this means then is that the clean person and the dirty person, well, they can be equally close to God. That's right. If you're a consummate clean freak that has scrubbed the finish off of all of your furniture, you're still no more closer to God than those who really don't care to spend all of their time and energy cleaning every crevice in their household. And if the thought of spring cleaning makes you want to run and hide, well, then just take a moment to imagine the overwhelming amount of work that was required of those who were in charge of cleansing the temple there in Jerusalem. If you think that cleaning your house is a huge responsibility, it's nothing in comparison to those who were cleaning the temple. Think about it. Every day, twice a day, animals were sacrificed and slaughtered there on Temple Mount as they were offered up to God. So just imagine the amount of blood each and every day there on the temple. Then there were the three pilgrimage festivals that happened every year where thousands and thousands of animals would be slaughtered and offered up as burnt offerings. And we can be certain then that the stones of Temple Mount, they were stained with blood and the cracks up there were filled with rotting flesh. Imagine the smell. It would just be gross. Let's not forget about the smoke damage caused by the constant fire burning there on the altar. And not only that, but the ash from that fire probably covered every surface with, with you know, the soot. And, and without debate then, the task of cleansing the temple there in Jerusalem, it was a massive amount of work. It was a massive amount of work. And yet, with all of this in mind, it's important to understand that when Jesus came to cleanse the temple... He didn't break out a scrub brush. He didn't get the bleach out. No, instead, he was less concerned about the, the soot and the blood stains, and, and he was more concerned about the spiritual stain of Israel's sin. Here in our text today, we're actually going to spend our time considering the way that Christ came and cleansed the temple, spiritually speaking. Not only that, but we're also going to consider the way that Christians have also been called to keep the temple clean. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that Christians cleanse the temple with faithful focus. Secondly, we'll learn that Christians cleanse the temple with purposeful prayer. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that Christians cleanse the temple with doctrinal devotion. With this as our outline, let's Open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually preparing the temple for the day of his sacrifice. Now, as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take some time to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you that it was in our study last week. That's when we learned about the day when Christ Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that revealed his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And after entering the city of Jerusalem, well, the Lord Jesus promptly made his way to the temple where he found the Israelites using the court of the Gentiles like a flea market. 
They were using the court of the Gentiles like a makeshift marketplace. And with all of this context in mind, let's consider how the Lord Jesus dealt with that here in Luke chapter 19. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 45. Here we learn that he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Christ Jesus. He's cleansing the temple in preparation for his crucifixion. And in order to more fully grasp the issue that the Lord was addressing, well, it'll first help us to remember that the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation there in the first century. Rome was occupying this region of the world, and with that being the case, well, all the Israelites were expected to use Roman currency in their day-to-day business transactions. They would pay their taxes with Roman currency. They would do business with Roman currency. And, and of course, these coins had the, the face of their Caesars. And, and with that being the case, you know, the, the Israelites, they, they had Roman currency in their pockets. It's also important to realize, though, that the Israelites were expected to travel to Jerusalem every year for three times a year. They were expected to go to the three pilgrimage festivals, and as they arrived at the temple, well, they were required to exchange their Roman currency for the required tribute of silver shekels and half shekels from Tyre. These were the approved temple coins. And it's for this reason, then, that the court of the Gentiles was filled with these money changers who were happy to transfer foreign funds into silver shekels, you know, with an additional fee, which was around 4%. And not only would the money changers exchange foreign currency for this 4% fee, but they would also change, uh, you know, charge the same exact fee if you wanted to change coins from larger to smaller denominations or vice versa. And so if you showed up and, and, and you said, hey, I need X amount of shekels, they would give you the shekels and, oh, you need half shekels because some of these fees included a half shekel. And so they'd charge you again, you know, just to break the full shekels down into half shekels. It was a racket. By the end of the transaction, most people ended up being charged 8 or 9% just to acquire the proper currency uh, to, to buy their animals or to, to pay their tributes. And not only that, but listen, the religious leaders of Israel, they also turned the court of the Gentiles into this marketplace for the sale of you know, special chosen animals which were pre-approved by the priests for temple sacrifice. I'll remind you, it was actually required of the worshipers to bring animals for sacrifice, but those animals, well, it was expected that those animals, animals would be free from spot and blemish. So then, how many times would you make this trek to Jerusalem? You arrive at the temple with your animal in tow, and the priest says, no, this one's not good enough. I found a spot. I found a blemish. Well, what would you do at that point in time? You'd have to go find an unblemished animal. Well, the priests solved this problem by saying, we've got these pre-approved animals over here. You know, they've been checked out by animal facts, you know, and, and, and you, you can buy these, well, for a special price, of course. 
travelers would end up purchasing their pre-approved sacrificial animal right there at the temple. But, you know, that was a premium price that they had to pay just to worship the Lord. And with that being the case, it's no wonder that the Lord Jesus accused the religious leaders there in Israel of turning the temple in Jerusalem into a den of thieves, which was in desperate need of cleansing. What's even worse is that this was actually the second time in three years that Christ Jesus cleansed the temple. The proof of my point can be found in John's account. So if you would, let's hold our place here in the gospel of Luke and let's turn to John chapter two. See, it's here in the second chapter of John's gospel account. Here we find the Lord Jesus cleansing the temple of God for the first time. This took place at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at John chapter two, we'll begin reading at verse 13. Here we learn that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now here in these verses, we find John's account of this day when Christ first cleansed the temple there in Jerusalem. And this event actually occurred at the beginning of his earthly ministry as the Lord Jesus fashioned this whip of cords. And he used this whip to drive out the money changers and the merchants and and all of their animals. And, And he drove out these people who were ripping off God's people right there in the court of the Gentiles. Sadly, rather than repenting of this wicked business practice, the money changers and the merchants, they quickly returned. It's for this reason that it was necessary for the Lord Jesus to cleanse the temple once again and just a few years later. Now, before we turn our, turn our attention back to Luke's account of this second cleansing, we should first consider the conversation that Christ has here in John chapter 2, right after the initial cleansing. If you would look with me again here at John chapter 2, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 18. Here we learn that the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now here in these verses, we find the Jews, they're asking Jesus to justify his actions. They wanted to know what a, by what authority do you think that you can come in here and cleanse our temple? By, by what authority do you come in here and chase out our business and, and, and run the money changers out and the merchants? But what, what, do you, what can you offer to us as proof that you're justified in doing these things? And in response to this, Christ Jesus points to the day when the temple would be destroyed and in three days raised. Now, they thought that he was referring to the temple that he had just cleansed. 
they thought that he was talking about the temple structure there in Jerusalem, but he wasn't. No, instead, he was actually referring to the temple of his physical body, which was, in fact, raised up from the grave on the third day. With that, we must not fail to see the connection that he was making between the temple there in Jerusalem and his physical body. The context of this conversation is that he had just cleansed the temple and then says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Clearly, he's making a connection here between the structure of the temple and his physical body. And, you know, I've, I've done a whole study on the original tabernacle and how it was a, a symbol of the physical incarnation of our Savior. Uh, there's a clear connection there. And, and the tabernacle, which gave way to the temple, the temple then would also be a symbol of the physical incarnation of the Word of God. Further proof of this point can be found in Revelation chapter 21. There we find the Apostle John. He's describing his vision of the new Jerusalem, which will come out of heaven. And he tells us in Revelation 21 verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in it. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no temple structure in the New Jerusalem because it's unnecessary. Our God and the Lamb will be the temple. And what this means then is that the temple building there on Temple Mount was just a placeholder. It was just a, a symbol pointing to our Savior. It was a placeholder for the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what this means then is that the temple that Jesus cleansed was just a symbol of our Savior's body. And, and listen, it's also important to understand that since the day of Pentecost, the church now has become the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And that's true until the rapture. After Jesus was crucified there on the cross, he was placed in the tomb. On the third day, he rose from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out to indwell the believer. And at that point in time, that's when the church becomes the mystical body of Jesus Christ. We are here to represent the body of Christ after his ascension. What this means then is that the church is now the temple. Not this building, of course. But every born-again believer in the world today, we have become the temple of God. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There he asks, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
Christian, listen, those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've now become the temple of the living God. And much like the temple, which was there in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit of God now dwells within the body of the born-again believer. The, the glory of the Spirit of God would manifest there at the temple, but now the glory of the Holy Spirit manifests within us. That being the case, Paul encouraged every believer to remember that we've been called to bring glory to God in the way that we live our lives. With this as the goal, it's crucial for Christians to keep the temple clean, spiritually speaking. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There he asks, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then he says this, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. As we consider this word of warning, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that, you know, it's possible for born-again believers to defile the temple of God. The Christian who lives for the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life is defiling their temple. And much like those merchants and those money changers who just came right back in after Christ cleansed the temple the first time, they came right back in and set their tables back up and brought the animals back into the court of the Gentiles. You know, much like that, there are born-again believers who are actively defiling the temple of their bodies, and this despite the fact that they've already been spiritually cleansed, that happened at the moment of their conversion. I'll remind you, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul assures us that those who repent and place their faith in Christ have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's right. At the moment of our conversion, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are spiritually cleansed. We are washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while it's true that the temple of the born-again believer has been cleansed from the stain of our sin, it's also true that Christians can then defile the temple once again with lustful living. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul also tells us, to flee from sexual immorality. And the reason why is because those who commit sexual immorality are simultaneously sinning against their own bodies. And what is their body? The temple of God. Sexual immorality defiles the temple. In Hebrews chapter 12, we also learn that those who harbor unforgiveness towards others are defiled by the root of bitterness that springs up within their soul. So yeah, unforgiveness defiles the temple. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul informs us that Christians can be defiled just by the company we keep. He says this by declaring, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts or defiles good habits. From this we see that the Christian who continues to hang out with corrupt people are simultaneously defiling the temple of God. The Lord Jesus sums it all up succinctly in Mark chapter 7 by declaring, from within, out of the heart of men, 
proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. All of these things defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. And from this, we can see then that the Christian who has been cleansed, you know, at the moment of our conversion, we were cleansed by by Christ Jesus, and yet the born-again believer is still able to defile the temple with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's sad to say that there are many backslidden believers who are defiling their flesh. They're defiling the temple of God by entertaining evil thoughts that typically result in sinful actions. With that being the case, we should take some time to consider how should a Christian keep the temple clean? How should a Christian keep the temple clean? And of course, I'm talking about the temple of our physical being and our soulish being and our spiritual being. How do we keep this temple clean? And with this question in mind, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presents in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. If you would hold your place here in the gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Romans, well, I want to take a moment to remind you that we're saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about works for salvation, of course. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But, but not only that, listen, we're also sanctified, cleansed by faith in the same Savior. In other words, those who trust in Christ Jesus are not only cleansed from their former sins at the very moment of our salvation, but then it's by the same faith that we continue to be consecrated and purified according to the perfect will of God. And it's for this reason that we have to continue having this faith-based focus on the will of God. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. What what are the bodies of the believer? The temple of God, right? So present your bodies, present your temple as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that those who have received the forgiveness of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we should maintain the same focus of faith as we continue to serve the Lord with daily sacrifices. Much like the Israelites who would bring daily sacrifices there to the temple, we too have been called to make daily sacrifices. But what sort of sacrifices are we to make? Well, again, Paul says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to present the temple as a living sacrifice. Well, what does that even mean? 
How do we go about making daily sacrifices in, in, in the way that we sacrifice the body or the temple? And, and with that, it's important to understand that the daily sacrifice that we've been called to make is the sacrifice of our sinful desires. The sinful desires that we still have hidden within our hearts, we are to take those and sacrifice them to the Lord. We've been called to present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice so that we can be holy and acceptable to God in the way that we live. With this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to maintain then a faithful focus on God's will as he renews our mind. You see, our sins begin in the mind. They begin in those desires. They begin in those, the, the, the heart where, where we begin to long for sinful things that defile us. And, and, and Paul is saying, sacrifice those things. And, and which things? Well, the things that the Lord helps you to see that need to be sacrificed as he renews your mind by faith. We are to offer the daily sacrifice of our sinful desires, which is the most reasonable and rational way for us to keep our temple clean. Knowing that we're all tempted to submit ourselves to the sinful desires that fill our minds, Paul encouraged us to instead focus our faith on the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God so that we can maintain the faithful focus by which we're able to keep our temple clean. So then we see Christians cleanse the temple with the faithful focus that leads us to sacrifice the sinful desires that would defile us. Not only that, but Christians should also cleanse the temple through the spiritual discipline of purposeful prayer. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19, where we find the Lord Jesus cleansing the temple there in Israel for the second time. You would look with me, we'll pick up our study and back up to verse 45. Here again, Luke tells us that Christ Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here in these verses, we find the Lord, he's rebuking those money changers and he's challenging those merchants who had decided that, well, it's okay to disregard that initial cleansing that Christ accomplished just three years prior. Rather than receiving the rebuke, they returned to the court of the Gentiles and they continued to turn the temple into a den of thieves. Meanwhile, the Gentiles who had come to the temple in order to seek the Lord, well, they soon found themselves trying to pray in a makeshift marketplace. That being the case, you know, Christ Jesus returned to correct them and he helped them to, to realize that they, uh, the temple of God isn't supposed to be a, a place of personal profit. Well, instead, it's supposed to be a house of prayer. You know, when, when, when people get it in their head that, well, the church is a great place to go make business contacts so that we can make some extra money. And no, it's not the purpose of the community of Christ. This isn't the place where we come to make business deals. This is the place that we come to worship the Lord and pray. And as we consider this word of correction that Christ was offering to the leaders there in the temple, we should first notice that Christ Jesus here, he's actually quoting a scripture which was previously presented by the prophet Isaiah. 
With this as the focus, I want to consider the context of the original quote, which is found in the writings of Isaiah. So hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. You see, it's here in the 56th chapter of Isaiah. We find the Lord here. He's actually inviting Gentiles from the nations of the world to come to the temple so that they could prayerfully present their sacrifices to the Lord. As we consider this invitation to all the Gentiles of the world, I want to consider how the Lord puts it here in Isaiah chapter 56. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4, here Isaiah writes, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreign foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here in these verses, we find the context of the quote that Christ Jesus was presenting when he rebuked the money changers and the merchants who had turned the court of the Gentiles into a shopping mall. And just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the court of the Gentiles was that outer court of the temple where the God-fearing Gentiles were being invited to come and present their sacrifices and their prayers to the Lord. This invitation is found right here in Isaiah chapter 56. The Lord is calling the Gentiles of the world to come to the temple, to enter the court of the Gentiles, and to pray. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, he says. Gentiles would come from all over the world, but rather than finding a peaceful place to pray, the Gentile converts would find themselves in the middle of a makeshift marketplace as money changers were making deals and merchants were trying to sell their wares. And it wasn't a nice place to pray. It was a nice place to make some profit if you could sell some animals. But it wasn't a good place to pray. These God-fearing Gentiles who made this long journey to Jerusalem would finally arrive at the temple looking forward to worshiping the Lord only to find themselves in the middle of this marketplace where money changers and merchants were making merchandise to the people who had come to worship the Lord. And as we consider this scene, it's sad to say that there are many leaders in the church today who are also turning the church into a den of thieves. Rather than creating a a community where Christians can enjoy corporate communion with Christ, uh, the church is filling up with false teachers who are fleecing the sheep for their own personal profit. They see the church as an opportunity for making money. Don't take my word for it. Just consider the warning that the, that the Apostle Peter made in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's there where he points into the future and he warns us by declaring this. He says that false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. 
they will make merchandise of you with deceptive words. Think about that for a moment. According to the Apostle Peter, the church would eventually be filled with false teachers who have no problem making merchandise of those who are willing to follow after those destructive ways. And it's sad to say that's exactly what we see happening in many churches today. And listen, many in the church today are happy to follow after these false teachers. Why? Well, because these false teachers are exploiting their, their, their covetousness. I mean, let's be honest, who doesn't want health and wealth? Who, who doesn't want prosperity? Yeah, we, we all struggle to some degree with covetousness. And then when these false teachers come along and say, oh yeah, the Bible says you're going to get all the health, all the wealth, all the prosperity, all the blessings, hundredfold increase. Just give to this ministry and God will give you back a hundredfold. And covetous Christians are just eat it up. Oh yeah, let me give you. Listen, the only, one, the only people getting rich on the prosperity gospel are prosperity preachers. Go look at their gated communities. Go look at their, their planes. Go look at their cars. Go look at their suits. The only people getting rich by the prosperity gospel, the only, the only people prospering with the prosperity gospel are the prosperity preachers. Why? Well, because you got a bunch of gullible Christians who eat it up. They've been exploited and they've been made into, into merchandise. And so which one's worse? The prosperity preachers or the Christians that support them? With this question in mind, I'd like you to turn back to Luke chapter 19. I want to take another look at the situation going on here at the temple. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 45. Here we learn that Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out who? Those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. But you, who? The people who bought and sold. They had all made it a den of thieves. The Lord Jesus was not, was not only chasing out those who were selling the merchandise, but he was cleansing the court of the Gentiles by driving out those who were buying the merchandise, those who were buying into the lies, those who were supporting this scam. Those who were purchasing these overpriced products were just as guilty as the merchants. One reason why is due to the fact that they were, they were helping to support this scam, which had turned the courts of the Gentiles into a den of thieves. Now, with all this in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, Am I allowing the temple to be defiled by my own covetous desires? And in this context, I'm talking about the temple of our body. Am I allowing false teachers to make merchandise of me? Am I uh, allowing them to exploit my own personal pursuit for pleasure and prosperity? Am I searching out false teachers who tickle my ears and tell me what I want to hear? 
Before you rush to answer these questions, I want to take some time to to examine our own temple for a minute here by asking, you know, is, is my temple a house of purposeful prayer? Do I, do I look at my body as a vehicle for praying to God? Or am I too busy to pray because I got business to do? I got money to make. I got deals to, to, to secure. Is it too much for you to pray in the morning because you got to get to work? Got to go do your thing. Got to go wheel and deal. And, and when we pray, what's the point of our prayers? Is it, please, 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 Lord, bless me? Give me what I want? Make everything go my way today? Is this the point of our prayers? Are we praying for prosperity or are we praying for purity? With these questions in mind, I want to consider the encouragement that James presented in James chapter 5. There he asks, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now here in these verses, we find James helping his audience to understand that Christians who are sick, Christians who are suffering, they ought to spend time praying and even to call for the elders of their church to pray over them. I can't help but to wonder how many Christians are still suffering with sickness today simply because they haven't done this. Simply because they haven't just come to the church and asked for the leaders to pray over them. I don't have time for prayer. And the Christian who is struggling with the sins that defile the temple, how many of us are still struggling because we won't confess our sins to one another? We keep it a secret. We don't confess our sins and we don't pray for one another. We don't hold one another accountable, you know, because, hey, my business is my business, none of your business. And all the while, we're coming to church for prosperity. Not very interested in purity. Come to church hoping to make some business deals, meet some influential people, but failing to say, hey, I'm struggling with sin. Can you pray for me? Would it be to God that we would become people of purposeful prayer who who are determined to keep our temple clean by taking the time to pray for one another and specifically to pray for one another's purity? This is the encouragement that that Paul presents in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he declares, Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Christian, listen, the Lord wants us to become people of purposeful prayer. And I don't mean to suggest that it's wrong for believers to, to pray for provision. It's, it's not a sin to pray for prosperity. And yet I'd like to suggest that it's even more important to pray for personal purity and to seek other believers so that we can confess our sinful struggles to one another and ask one another to pray for each other. Let's pray for one another so that we can receive the effective power of the Holy Spirit who is here to help us so that we can keep our temple clean from every evil desire. You see, Christians cleanse the temple with the faithful focus that leads us to, to remember that we are to sacrifice our sinful desires to, to stop from defiling the temple. And, and not only that, but Christians cleanse the temple through the spiritual discipline of purposeful prayer as we learn to pray for one another that we might become believers who are pure. Thirdly and finally, we should consider how Christians cleanse the temple with doctrinal devotion. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19 here. We find the Lord Jesus. He's now teaching there in the temple. And I want to take another look at Luke's account beginning at verse 47. Here we learn that he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Him. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we learn about the way in which the Lord Jesus spent this time teaching there in the temple. So he cleanses the temple the second time, and then he spends the rest of his time there teaching uh, until he, he's finally you know, arrested and then crucified. Now, as we consider the way that he taught in the temple, it'll help you to know that the word teaching found there in verse 47, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the didactic discourses designed to impart doctrine. And while this included, you know, presentation of, uh, of the parables, like the parable of the wicked vine dressers and the widow's might, Jesus was also presenting them with clear didactic instructions about the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Christ and many other lessons. We'll continue to, to examine the things that he taught there at the temple after this cleansing. But for the sake of our study today, we should notice that rather than receiving the doctrinal discourses that Jesus was teaching there at the temple, the religious leaders of Israel began to discuss the best way to destroy our Savior. That word destroy found there at the end of verse 47 was translated from a Greek word, which could also be rendered put to death. That's right. They wanted to put Jesus to death. One reason why is because the Lord Jesus was the one who just came in and shut down their whole scam. Jesus was the one who came in there and closed down shop, shut down their lucrative racket by driving the money changers out and by pushing the immoral merchants from the temple of God. So they wanted to put him to death. He was getting in the way of their prophet. Not only that, but we can also be certain that the religious leaders of Israel, they were jealous of Jesus. One reason why is because the people there at the temple were attentive to hear him. That word attentive is found there at the end of verse 48. It's translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who would hang upon every word of their teacher. 
You better believe that the religious leaders there in Israel were, were filled with incredible jealousy as they saw the way that the people would listen to the Lord as he taught there in the, in the temple. He, they were attentive. They were hanging on his every word. Now, as we consider Luke's account, we can see here that uh, there were two distinct responses to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Christ comes in, cleanses the temple, starts teaching. There's two reactions, two responses. There were the religious leaders who wanted to silence the voice of our Savior by putting him to death. And meanwhile, uh, the people responded by hanging on his every word, listening intentively as he taught them in the temple. And as we consider this contrast between these two responses, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, uh, how do I respond? What's my response when the Lord Jesus comes a cleansing? How do I react when the Lord Jesus shows up in my life and, and cleanses the temple and begins to try to tell me something? Do we try to silence the voice of our Savior or do we seek his word for further instruction? With this question in mind, I want to take a moment to remind you of something that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5. It's there where we learn that Christ loves the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ loves the church, and he died for us so that he might sanctify us so that he might cleanse us. And how does he cleanse us? By washing us with the pure water of his word. That being the case, it is very sad to say that there are many in the church today who desperately need a bath. Many in the church today who desperately need a spiritual scrub down. And the reason why is because they haven't taken the time to study the word in days or weeks, maybe even years. Listen, I, I don't know how you are, you know, in, in your own personal hygiene. You know, I, I believe that showers are good every day. It doesn't take long to get stinky. A good wash down is, is pretty healthy for us every single day. How much more so, spiritually speaking? And, you know, I, I've got friends who take a bath once a week, whether they need it or not, and they fail to recognize they need it. But spiritually speaking, we get filthy every day. And we need that washing of the water with the word every single day. And yet the church is filled with people who, they don't really like to study the Bible. Can't really put their finger on why. 
Well, except for the fact that, you know, you read the Bible, the next thing you know, Jesus is trying to chase the money changers out and trying to get rid of the merchants. But I like the money changers. I love the merchants. And so they stay away from the word because they don't want the conviction. This sounds like your struggle, then I encourage you to realize that the only way to make sure that our temple continues to be cleansed is by becoming those devoted disciples who are attentive students of God's word. We need to be attentive listeners to God's word. And with this as the goal, I want to take some time to consider the instructions that Paul presented to the church in Colossae. So if you would, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. You see, it's here in the third chapter of Colossians where we find Paul. He's helping the believers there at the church in Colossae to uh, recognize the connection between our attention and our actions. What we attentively give our attention to typically becomes the influencer or the driver of our actions. And that's for better or for worse. That being the case, we should consider what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 16. Here Paul declares, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, as we consider what Paul is saying, we must not fail to notice the progression and the connection between our attention and our actions. And we see this spelled out here as devotional disciples who attentively study the word of God, then fill their hearts with the word of God. And as a result, they begin to teach and admonish others as we gather together to worship our Savior. And as we engage then in corporate worship here at our church, we then begin to realize that the Lord is actually calling us to not only live for him here at church, but also everywhere as we do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this progression hanging attentively on the words of Christ leads us into fellowship with other believers where we then worship together and challenge one another to become better people when we leave. And yet there are many Christians they're really not interested in this whole process of sanctification. And not only do they not want Christ coming in and chasing out the money changers, but they're certainly not going to hear it from some other person who is also imperfect. And it's sad to say that we've watched many leave the church because they got challenged, didn't like hearing it. They got their own agenda, got their own plan, God help anyone who gets in their way. And oftentimes, you know, if you've loved someone enough to go and challenge them about decisions in their life, you know, they, they, they get mad, they get upset, and then it becomes about, well, it's not what you said. It's how you said it. Really? You sure it wasn't just about what I said? Because no matter how I said it, if it's true, 
then it's something that you ought to repent of. But I don't have to repent because you said it in a rude way. Listen, if you've got this, this big, you know, you know just, just chunk of dirt on your face, and, and you were, you know, doing some work at the house, cleaning your oven or whatever, and now you've got just grease just, you know, streaking your face, and I come up and go, hey, you got dirt on your face. Well, I don't have to clean it because of the way that you said that, you know. No one's going to make that argument. If I go, hey, you got some dirt on your face. Or if I go, hey, idiot, you got dirt on your face. Either way, you're going to go wash your face. And so if I take the word of God and I go, hey, there's sin in your life here. Or if I go, hey, you're blowing it. What does it matter how I said it? If it's true, clean the temple. You need to quit worrying about how it was said. And look, let's be gentle. Let's, let's love one another and, and try to speak the truth in love, of course. But if somebody delivers it in the wrong tone, that doesn't give you the right to continue living in sin. We need to be sanctified by the word of God. And whether that's Jesus coming and, and, and convicting our hearts as we study his word or a Christian coming along and being used to challenge us, let's receive the challenge. And let's adjust our lives accordingly. The whole point is to keep the temple clean so that we can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. I like the way that the Lord Jesus sums it up here in John chapter 17. Here he declares, he's praying to the Father and says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Christian who wants to keep their temple cleansed and, and in other words, uh, sanctified and set apart for the work of the Lord, the, the Christian who wants to keep their temple consecrated should spend time studying the truth of God's word every day because the truth of God's word is that which sanctifies us, body, soul, and spirit. With this as the goal, let's become those attentive students of God's word who are hanging upon the teachings of Christ so that we can keep the temple clean through doctrinal devotion. And listen, as we continue to study the word of God, we're inevitably going to come across those convicting passages that are designed to to cleanse the carnal cravings that still fill our hearts. And in this way, listen, the Lord is coming and driving out the money changers and the immoral merchants from our hearts. And with that being the case, the best thing that we can do is to make sure that we don't invite them back in. If the Lord has brought conviction into your heart and mind about something, don't be like, oh yeah, okay. And then tomorrow is just right back to the same old thing. No. If he's trying to drive out the money changers and the merchants, don't invite them back in tomorrow. Don't make room for the money changers and the immoral merchants, but instead let's maintain doctrinal devotion so that we can keep the temple clean according to the sanctifying truth of God's word. As we begin to wrap up this study, it's important for us to remember that Christians cleanse the temple by maintaining a faithful focus. It's the focus that leads us uh, to sacrifice the sinful desires that still defile us. Christians also cleanse the temple through the spiritual discipline of purposeful prayer as we join together here in our family of faith to to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And Christians cleanse the temple with doctrinal devotion, which helps us to, to understand God's will for our life so that we can live a life that actually glorifies him. And with all this in mind, 
we can also rejoice in knowing that the Lord will continue to cleanse our temple as often as we need it. Isn't it nice to know that Christ Jesus cleansed the temple twice? Yeah, he cleansed the temple at at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and then by the end of his earthly ministry, it needed cleansing again. So what did Jesus do? He cleansed it again. Isn't it nice to know that our Savior is patient with us? Isn't it nice to know that he's going to continue to cleanse us despite the fact that we continue to go back to the same mud pit that got us dirty last time? Praise the Lord for his patient grace. And isn't it nice to know that he's eventually going to give us a brand new body? that needs no cleansing. I don't know about you, but it's going to be nice in eternity when we no longer need showers. Yeah, he's going to give us a brand new body that will never need to be cleansed again. But until that day comes, you know, the day when we finally receive that brand new body, let's just make sure that we're doing what we can to keep this temple clean. The best way to do that is just by simply allowing Christ to come in and cleanse us according to the pure water of his holy word. Let's pray.